Hello and welcome. This is Baltic Wars. Murder, war, heroes. This is our new series. It's episode one, 1648. A revolt in the Ukraine leads to war everywhere. Should sound possibly familiar. This new series in our Great Big History podcast is on Scandinavian and Baltic history. From 1520 to 1809, that's the idea, but we're going to do much more because even today we're going to talk about 1648, but we got to go back into history and we're going to definitely make allusions to 2022. So, so we're going to talk about much more. Yeah, basically Baltic Wars, we're not done with Baltic Wars, so we're going to talk a, talk a lot about wars in the Baltic and Scandinavian areas. So, let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. I am a professor of history at Canham County College. I've been there since 2007. I have a PhD in European military history, specializing in Scandinavia and the Baltic in the 1650s. Uh, my dissertation was Invasions, Insurgency, and Interventions, Sweden's Wars in Poland, Prussia, and Denmark from 1654 to 1658. And I did all of that from SUNY Stony Brook. So I am one of the few people in the country who specialize in a area of military history that just of Scandinavian and Baltic military history in this time period. So I hope you enjoy. And now, granted, 1648 is a weird place to start. But when the Ukrainian crisis happened in 2022, it looks vaguely familiar. A separatist revolt in the southeastern Ukraine sparked a war and then a massive Russian invasion. That's 1648 and the 1650s. That led Western armies to assemble in the Baltic to protect them from Russian invasions. In my dissertation, I talk about Swedish garrisons, Swedish army garrisons in Riga, Narva, Dorpat, in Livonia, Latvia, Estonia, the Baltic, what is today the Baltic States? And what's the headlines? Denmark offers to send 800 troops to the Baltic. Like it's 1550 again. Denmark used to be a, used to have a protectorate. In the Baltic states, they were replaced by the Swedes. Biden is sending to the Balt troops to the Baltic F-35s to NATO's eastern flank. The Ukrainian war. NATO to send more troops to Eastern Europe. So it started as a separatist movement in southeastern Ukraine, brought about a Russian invasion, which is now bringing in Western intervention in the Baltic region. In the 1650s, it was the Swedes. Today, it's NATO. So we have to start with our context. And we start with the time of troubles in Russia, a time of weakness. Now, that goes from 1598 to 1613. And it's a time of insurrection, peasant revolts, pretender kings. In fact, the throne changed six times. This is a bad period 
to be a Russian. Notice Vladimir Putin makes a similar argument about the 1990s, about the end of the Soviet Union. You have the collapse of the economy. You have the collapse of world power. You have the collapse of prestige. Poland occupied Moscow twice. Occupied Smolensk. Sweden even proposed a Swedish prince for the throne. They occupied Novgorod. So from the Russian perspective, what we see is a time of internal weakness followed by Western invasions, Western push, Western, Westerners coming east, the Poles, the Swedes, to enforce their authority, their power on the Orthodox Slavic Russians. So this is a period of, West, of humiliation at the hands of Catholic Poles, Protestant Swedes. For context, and now go back into history. For context, by 1618, Poland-Lithuania was a massive state. It was the most populous in Europe. It had some 12 million people. It was a million square kilometers. And it was multi-ethnic. It had Protestant Germans in the Baltic coast. It had Catholic Poles, especially in the West. It had Orthodox Lithuanian, Belarusians, Ukrainians, Cossacks. It had a very large Jewish population. And the relative, quote, weakness of the Polish kings, the Polish state, was actually an advantage to keeping all of these people in one state and keeping them relatively working together. They also had, Poland, Lithuania also had the best heavy cavalry in Europe, the famed winged hussars who crushed the Swedish army at Kirkholm in 1605 and then crushed a Swedish-Russian army at Klushino in 1610. In Sweden, following a period of internal strife under the sons of Gustavus Vasa, we get Gustavus Adolphus, kind of the hero king, who after 1617 begins to innovate Sweden's military and its government organization. This is Michael Roberts's argument, the, the famous military revolution, a uh, historiographical um, thesis that is, is become so famous that it's, it's, you see it everywhere. It's not just he meant it for Sweden in the 17th century, which was then copied by other people, but you see, oh, the military revolution all over the place, the, the Roman military revolution, the, the Greek military revolution. So the tank revolution, things like that, that, that all comes out of Mar Michael Roberts's arguments that to create an efficient military, Sweden had to create the government institutions that could support that military, that modern, um, what is essentially a modern military, what was called at the time, the new legions. In the 1620s, Sweden is able to conquer some of the German speaking Prussians and take them away from Poland. In the 1630s, they invaded northern Germany, 
Gustavus Adolphus is killed at Lutzen in 1632. And in the 1640s, Sweden began its ascendancy over its longtime enemy, Denmark. There's a, I don't know if it's in the Guinness Book of World Records, but the Swedes and the Danes have apparently fought more wars against each other than any other two peoples, any other two states. In the 1630s, Russia failed spectacularly to recapture Smolensk. In fact, the Polish sally broke the siege. So the Russians laid siege to Smolensk, and the Poles came out of the city and broke the siege and, and defeated the Russians and pushed them back. Kind of a Kiev in April 2022 kind of example. Though Kiev was never fully surrounded. Sweden was powerful, but about to enter a long regency under Queen Christina. Poland-Lithuania was huge, strong, but lacked the institutions of unity. And that brings us to Kamelnitsky's uprising in 1648, who's Jesuit educated Cossack leader. He fought for Poland against the Turks in the 1620s. He was captured. He was ransomed back. Perhaps there's a story that he fought for France versus Spain in the 1640s. He's worldly. Educated, doing well. Pro-Poland. So why why does this uprising happen? Well, Ukraine is this wild west. So it's it's this frontier. Turkish speakers had dominated the Crimea and southern and and well, they had dominated from the Mongols. They had dominated all of the Crimea, uh, all of the Ukraine. But Turkish speakers still dominated the Crimea, and they were aligned with the Ottomans. The Cossacks were self-governing and semi-nomadic. They're, you know, uh, kind of a Christian horse people roaming around. They're Orthodox Slavs. There's the Russian peasants to the north. Ukraine has a large steppe. Perfect for cavalry, which Poland needed, but also has lots of great farmland. You see it today, right? Ukraine is the fourth or fifth largest producer of wheat in the world or exporter of wheat. They have lots of great farmland, which the Polish Catholic, Polish Jewish, and Orthodox Slavic farmers and the nobility all wanted to monetize. So as the Crimean Tartars, T-A-R-T-A-R-S, the Turkish-speaking kingdoms, were being defeated and pushed back, pushed back towards the Crimea, pushed back towards the, the Ottoman border. That opened up all of this frontier that lots of people wanted to make money on that was now available. So the Cossacks are Slavic horse folk, raided settled folk, and the Tatar Turks, which the Polish king didn't like because it caused problems with the Ottoman king. And the Tatar Turks, well, you know, 
raided settled folk and the Cossacks, shipping the slaves off to Constantinople, which the Polish king didn't like. These were his, his, his peasantry, maybe his nobility. Future mercenaries, if they were Cossacks. So, but Polish armies were few and far between. They're powerful, but there's not a lot of concentrated force. This is a frontier. And so it's a lot of frontier justice. So there's constant Cossack revolts every decade. And the Polish Polish armies are consistently able to put them down. And they would buy off some of the Cossack nobility, promise lands, um, try to settle them down into towns, do things that, that brought the Cossacks into the Polish fold. Um, which the Polish government, the Polish-Lithuanian government, I should say, was uniquely situated to deal with because it wasn't um, it wasn't so unified. It was much more based on local control. So local big shots could be incorporated because they got a lot of rights. They got a lot of freedoms. The Russian czars are far away and they're more concerned with Smolensk and getting back parts of what is what was then Lithuania, what's today Belarus. All of this means that there's war all the time and there's not a lot of government order or monopoly on power. It is a place where the charismatic few can have have space to grow, to lead, to create something. Kamelnitsky's lands got confiscated. So what begins is this what be, begins this, this massive revolt that's going to involve hundreds of thousands of people. It's going to be a disaster for Poland-Lithuania that's going to bring in a massive Russian invasion that's going to engulf Eastern Europe starts as a property dispute between neighbors. Kamelnitsky's lands got confiscated by a Polish military commander and lord. The Polish military commander moved into the area changed the maps, moved the lines around, and basically said, I own your land now. Well, he was mad. Kamelnitsky was mad. But he didn't immediately revolt. He didn't really have an army or anything. So what he did was went to the Polish king. He went to the courts. He went. He, he did what an ordinary person would do. Hey, this my neighbor is, is take, took over my land. That's mine. Fix it. And the Polish king was no help. The Polish king, in some ways, couldn't help. Remember, we just talked about how it was a frontier. And the Polish king didn't want to help. You know, this is some Cossack. Eh. The Polish military commander is more important. The Polish military lords were more important. 
If you go against one of them, you might cause a problem with the rest of them who are now moving in, settling, quote, civilizing, Catholicizing, you know, making Catholic this territory. You know, like I said, it's like a Wild West. And so like out of a um, Cormac McCarthy novel, the idea for the, for the Polish-Lithuanian state was you bring in your own nobility. You bring in your own lords. They carve up the, this frontier. They put peasants on it. They start farming it. They maybe put up fences and whatnot. And the idea is they, they settle it. Well, Kamelnitsky wasn't very happy about that. It was his land. So he goes to his fellow Cossack lords, and they turn out to all be mad about the changing economic arrangements. It's their land, and their view. Why are these foreigners, these Catholics, coming in? They also were mad that they weren't really being incorporated in to the Polish power system there's i read a couple of books where the argument basically was all of these guys wanted to be polish lords they wanted to have land they wanted to have money they wanted to have authority they wanted to have a say in the diet in the parliament and the polish lithuanians from the west and the north weren't allowing them so they were being frozen out of power. Well, if the system's not working for you, break the system. Build a new system. And so what we get is a revolt. And it starts with the defeat of a small Polish force, which allowed for more popularity. Hey, this thing might work. Then the, the Polish lords put together an army. And at Korsun got crushed, and that boom, that defeat opened up the whole thing. Suddenly it made it, we, for the Cossacks, we really can break free. This really might work. Maybe the Poles aren't so tough as we thought. Kamelnitsky makes an alliance with the hated Turks, with the, with the Tartars, right? They're old enemies. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Tartars were no friend of the, the Polish lords moving in. Because as much as it was happening to the Cossacks, it was happening to the Tartars as well. The Turkish lands were all being carved up. Taken by these, by, by, by the feudalism of Western Europe. This is also happening as the old Polish king died and a new king had to be elected. And the new king, John Casimir, gets a royal army together, says, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to show I am as good as my brother who defeated the Russians. Rolls in with his, with a classic Polish army crushed at Zaboro. The treaty that follows, John Casimir almost got captured. The treaty that followed is a complete defeat. 
It basically kicks the Poles and the Jews out of eastern Ukraine. It basically wins the Cossacks this independence. Now, what the Cossacks intended to create and whether it could have stuck together and had any unity is a whole different story. But what this initiated, this collapse of Polish-Lithuanian authority, initiated a massacre of non-Orthodox, non-Cossacks. And the most horrifying part of all of these war crimes is the pogrom slash genocide of the Jewish population in the region, which continues with the Russian invasion later in the 1650s. In Jewish historiography, this is seen as a precursor precursor to the pogroms of late Tsarist and the Nazi genocide. This outpouring of violence against a foreigner. They were seen as Polish um, interlocutors. They were also Jewish and not Christian. They had, if they were had any land holdings, they had some money, and so they became targets. Now, we'll see this again in greater Poland in, in during the 1650s war where again these these grew, well then it will be guerrilla partisans unable to attack the Swedes in the Prussian cities go after the Jewish populations in western Poland on the Vistula Vistula and in the Baltic regions so this isn't just contained to a piece of southeastern Ukraine. It will spread. And it's seen as this. How does one say it? That there's something continuous in this area of the world for this that this is not a one-time thing. That we're going to see this again and again and again. That this hatred stays and will be let loose on the Jewish population over and over again. In Ukrainian history, this whole incident is seen as a liberation against Western Catholic elites and against quote Jewish landlords now there's a lot of dispute about how many Jewish landlords there were because there were also Jewish peasants but the memory of these incidents shows the huge chasm in the cultural memory in, in the Ukrainian population even today even 400 years later the idea that the same incidents are seen as a triumph by one group and a catastrophe for another shows that today there's this huge chasm in cultural memory. In the 1650s, Poland-Lithuania recovers. John Casimir raises a new force, rolls in, and this time 
crushes the Cossacks and the Tartars at Baranschenko. I'm sure I pronounced terribly and wrong. But that's north of, northeast of Lviv. It's in the western Ukraine, which is interesting. So it tells you that the Cossack raids don't just stay in the Cossack territories in southeastern Ukraine. They're spreading. They're into more settled areas. They're closer to Poland. They're closer to the heartland of Lithuania. Now, what's interesting about this battle is that the Polish army looked more Swedish. It was taking on Gustavus Adolphus's changes. Instead of just being almost all heavy cavalry or heavy and light cavalry, it had artillery, it had a large contingent of German musket infantry, it had the famed heavy cavalry, Polish-Lithuanian heavy cavalry, so it had these combined arm elements that we won't really see again in the Polish-Lithuanian army and in the 1650s anyway, and that we didn't really see too much before. We're used to the, the Polish and Lithuanian armies being these like 90% cavalry armies. Well, Kamilnenski is captured by the Tartars. He's later released, but this is a disaster for the Cossacks and Cossack independence. Kiev is recaptured by Lithuanian forces. And the Battle of Bila Shakiva, in theory, should have ended the revolt. Another Cossack defeat. There is a treaty that's made that, that is basically gives the Poles all they want, but the Polish Diet doesn't accept the treaty, which leads to more war, more massacres. The, the theme is that from 1651, 1652, 1653, uh, battles happen, but they don't cause political change. Now, the treaty that's rejected, I, I've, in several of my books, it's used as a way of saying, look, the Polish state is, is unorganized. It can't function. You know, uh, one book even had that it was, it was denied by a, one veto. The famous, the famous veto of the in the Polish Diet, where if one guy objects, nothing can happen, and that it was a, it's, it uses this argument of um, political stalemate of that the the governmental system stopped working. But from this Polish and Lithuanian nobility, why would you make a treaty? Like if one guy's objecting, it's not just one guy. There's a lot of guys in the Diet who are like. This reopens the land to cultivation. This reopens us to settlement. We got kicked out. Now we can return. Why would we want... We're winning. Why would we sign a treaty now? Why would we make a deal? Why not just have... Just why not keep pressing the battle and win? And so there's plenty of people who, who want to keep fighting. And keep fighting, they do. And so 
what does that tell us? It tells us that the Ukraine is very hard to control. That you can fight a lot of battles and not a lot of change happens. But eventually, it spreads. It's not going to stay where it, where it starts. And 1653, Kamelnitsky makes an alliance between the Cossacks and the Russians and Tsar Alexis. What is promised is Russian suzerainty over the Cossack territories. So the Cossacks will get protection from the Polish-Lithuanian armies and the Russians are, quote, in charge. It's unclear if the Cossacks knew what Alexis or later his son Peter had in mind, which was the complete Russian domination of this territory. But in 1653, having suffered several defeats, needing, needing an ally, they turned to the Orthodox, their Orthodox cousins, and the result of this is a more war, a massive Russian invasion of the Ukrainian East and Northeast. A conquest of the Ukraine, Western intervention, a collapse of Poland-Lithuanian government, a reoccupation of what we could day, today call Belarus, war in the Baltic. So in episode two, we're going to talk about the Russian invasion, the Russian intervention, and what effect that has on Poland, on Sweden, on the West today. And we'll talk, we'll make, you know, some allusions to 2022. Because here's the thing is when, when Russia invaded Ukraine and moved to capture Kiev and invaded the Eastern, the Donbass, well, that's, that looks just like the 1650s. And then what happened? Western militaries sent troops to the, to the East, to the Baltic. Hey, hey the Swedish army sent Carl Gustav, Carl 10th, uh, anti-tank missiles. Charles X anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians. Charles X is the last, last uh, Swedish king who uh, defeats the Russians in the Baltic. So it's kind of a, a, we'll have to talk about this. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But I found that when I saw, saw this in the, in the Swedish newspapers, oh, they're sending the, the Carl Gustav anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians. It's like, this is, this really is the 1650s. We have Western troops in Riga and Estonia and Tallinn. We have Carl Gustav blowing up Russian tanks. Like we've got a war outside of Kiev. We've got Russian troops in the Donbass. Like, Suddenly my, my, suddenly, suddenly my, I started telling my fellow professors, I, like, suddenly my dissertation is relevant. Who knew? So, 
thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. This is the first of many episodes. Um, we don't quite have a schedule yet, but we're going to kind of try to get them out at least once a week. Um, and if we can, if we can find the time, if we could build, do the research and build the stuff, um, we have, we were on YouTube, great big history podcast on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you. We also, um, have this as an audio only on Stitcher and Apple podcasts and wherever you can find your podcast. So great big history. Great Big History Podcast, Baltic Wars, a new season. So thank you very much for taking a chance on this and, and taking the time. I hope I hope you liked. Bye.